Welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another spectacular guest. She's a University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School graduate and currently works as the president, CEO, and general counsel of Focus Forward Consulting, chief leadership and talent officer for Woman LLC, and as an expert and consultant for the Bates Group. She has also held past positions as the Senior Vice President and Associate General Counsel at MetLife. Excited to have her on the podcast today, Mrs. Sheila Murphy. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? I'm so grateful to be here, Nate. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very happy to have you here, Sheila. Now, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, you gave sort of the biography of me, but what I think is interesting to a lot of people is I sort of, you know, we were talking earlier, you and I, and there's this path you get on, and I was on that path to go to law school. But the one thing is I don't like speaking in public. I don't like talking to people. And so I went to law school with this dream of being what I call an ostrich attorney, which is someone who keeps their head sort of in the sand or their head in the desk. And I thought this was a great strategy. And I got a job doing corporate law at a law firm. And I thought, oh, fabulous. I can go. I can be in a basement. I can draft documents. Don't have to talk to anyone. And on my first day, as I'm waiting to go to my office, the managing partner comes out and introduces himself and says, by the way, we were short one litigator and we need someone to take that spot. And we selected you. And like my heart just dropped. It's like my mother helped with law school. She'll kill me if I run out of here now. So I ended up um, being at law school. I mean, at my first job, like feeling like a fraud for like five to six years. And then finally, a friend introduced me to an opportunity in house. It's like, oh, thank God. I never have to pretend. I don't have to like, you know, act like I want to go to court or do any of this. And then I got there and I'm in a meeting one day and one of my peers got promoted And the thing was, it wouldn't bother me, but he really was a lousy lawyer. But he did all the things like talk about himself, tell people what he was doing. And I realized in that moment, I needed to change if I wanted to have a career that I wanted. And also just help my company out so I didn't have the lousy lawyering going up the ranks. And so what I tell people all the time is you can change. You can do things that seem uncomfortable and get to another level And, you know, the ironic part is that lousy lawyer, by the time he left for the company, was reporting to me. So that's sort of the moral (laughs) of the story. Well, I think I think at first it's a wonderful story. And there's a big point to be made there. Something we talk, something that I've talked about on this podcast with many guests is the malleability of skills. The fact that you can change the way that you do things and improve the way that you do skills very efficiently. And, you know, you got to get it again. But got to get the reps in, something very important that I've learned and something that on the previous episode with Jonah Perlin, we talked about extensively. But let's go back to the wonderful year of 1984. I usually say what age I was. And I've noticed that I keep offending people. So I got to stop doing that. But I think I think I was (laughs) (laughs) negative 19, perhaps. I might be getting my math wrong there. But you were at Binghamton. You had a Bachelor of Science in management. And then the next year, once you graduated, you went to UPenn Law School in 1985. Simply put, Sheila, why'd you go to law school? Why'd you make the decision? Um, Well, first, when I went to Binghamton and I ended up with a management degree, I broke my father's heart. He wanted an accountant. It was a great, safe position. Um, 
And so I, when I decided I didn't want that, it seemed like a lot of people were going to law school. So I sort of got on the train, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, we were all, you know, studying for the LSTAT together. We talked about that. And actually, Billy Baldwin was in my LSTAT class. I don't know if you know, he was a Binghamton graduate. Um, and he smartly did not, not smartly, he decided not to go to law school to pursue that acting thing. Um, but it was sort of like, I always loved, like, I love this old movie that's called Adam's Rib with Catherine Hepburn and um, Spencer Tracy. And I just loved how she was able to be her full self and smart and whatever in the courtroom, even though I didn't want to go to court. And that sort of inspired me to go to law school. I did graduate a few months early. So I actually did work for a year at a support company for lawyers, which gave, in which everyone thought, oh, this will be a great experience. It was didn't matter to anything I ever did later on. You know, it's one of those things. People are like, oh, it'll be helpful. I don't know. Um, but when I got there, I have to say like, there's so many, and I think what, makes this podcast so valuable as I was, you know, I was first generation uh, college graduate, first person to graduate on my mother's side from her family um, and her media family. And my father was in education. So no one really understood the law or what it was. It was just a path that they thought was a good profession. I would do well. And I got to law school and like, there were people who really understood what this thing was about beyond maybe watching this TV show back then called the paper chase. And I was just so out of my league as to what it was going to be like that I think having people come on and talk about the experience and that, you know, there are setbacks and failures and missteps and people still do well and it's okay is important because I was just out of my element. Well, I appreciate you uh, saying that this podcast has such value. I thank you for that. That's a very nice comment. Uh, it's it's very nice that I could put things out that are valuable to people out there and who can learn from these experiences and be able to apply them to their own life. But you talk about how you were out of your element. So let's go to the first year of law school. How was that for you? A lot of people say it's very traumatic. A lot of people say, but people love it, actually. Some people come on this podcast and okay. like, I can see, but yeah, go ahead. Here's the truth, because I'm not, you know, I think you're getting the fact that I am a truth seeker. I, you know, like I said, I wasn't, I had always done well without really, I have a good memory. So I could read things several times and take a test and be okay. And I went to law school and I, you know, I was not in the top 10% or 20%, but I also just kept doing what I used to do, which is go out. So I would find those few people in, at law school who went out. And so I did have a good social uh, interaction there. Probably was not the best, you know, I'm now sort of, a, my company now is a career company for lawyers and probably not what I would recommend to someone in the job market today to take my path, but it worked for me. Um, so, but I was lost a lot when people were talking about things like clerkships and law, and some people had worked in law firms as paralegals, and they some people had very concrete ideas of what they wanted to do and how it was in the career path, and that's what I meant, that there was this whole other world of people who were a lot more mature than I am, was at that point, probably am too, and um, I just didn't understand. Dan, what it was to go to law school and the whole process. And I think my lack of confidence in public speaking and presenting myself was also a hurdle in terms of interviewing for summer associate things and things like that. But I, again, I just didn't, I was like, yeah, I had no clue what was going on. 
it eventually worked out, but it took a little time. <laughs> well, I, it, it, it all comes to the trials and tribulations of life, but it sounds like you had a very learning experience. Uh, reality sometimes hits you in the face very fast and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do from here? But from from that, I, I, you, you continued to speak about how you had trouble with public speaking and that you wanted, to, I, I know you were telling, saying before you wanted to be the ostrich lawyer, keep your head in the sand. And in terms of that, how did you sort of figure out what you wanted to do with the law, what sort of specialized field you wanted to go into prior to becoming an associate at Thatcher Profit? Well, and well it was really just like where I wouldn't have to speak. That was my game plan. That was really it. You know, someplace where I would just do documents and not have to go to court. That was, you know, wasn't really a lot of research. It wasn't based out of passion for anything. And so the irony is, after being put into litigation, is during my whole legal career, I was a litigator. I never went to the other side, even though I had options at certain points to explore different things. Um I did find that I liked the strategy of it and that whole uh, pace, but I also found that I loved the in-house aspect, which was more advisory, big picture, meeting with the business, helping the business mitigate future risks. So I think once I left the law firm, which was great training, and I rec you know, I recommend law firms highly for that, um, it was only when I got in-house I realized that the strengths that I had were better suited for that environment. So that's a really important point as well, playing to your strengths. I've sort of done that myself. I'm not not the biggest lover of school, but I like talking to people. So I made a podcast. And so and, and you're doing networking. You're you're schmoozing all over. You got it down. <laughs> uh, don't, don't reveal all my secrets, yeah. Sheila, please. Uh, but I think it's an important point to make to play your strengths, to be able to identify your strengths as well. Sometimes it's not exactly clear what you're good at or what you're not good at. But I think in the sense that you pursued the sort of position that you knew you were going to be most successful in is a really important point to make for people out there listening. Uh, you eventually became the counsel at MetLife and you were there for 18 Years. 23, 23. 23. Oh, wow. Yeah, 23 years. It started in 95. I read the end of the, the zeros there. 23 years at MetLife. I'm a Giants fan. I love MetLife Stadium, even if it's not the best, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be the best. I'm like for the game. Anyway. See, if you're as old as I have, I've actually seen Super Bowl wins. <laughs> <laughs> but can you talk about your experience at MetLife? sort of going up the ladder and, and such like that. You, you know, and I started to, that's where I met the, the gentleman. Um, I loved my time at in-house. I really, you know, found where I thought I could add value. I did have to, like I said, improve certain things to be able to have the impact I wanted on the organization. But what I loved about it was the idea that when I started there, I, you know, came in and I was sometimes acting like a partner in a law firm and sometimes acting like a first year associate, depending on what I was doing. And I just learned so much because it was such high level work. You had so many matters that it was constantly learning. And even though I was mostly in the same group 
certain things came in and out of it over time. So I was constantly, I was never bored until maybe the end a little bit after 23 years, but we, I had an old fashioned pension, which is another reason to stay at a company. If you ever find a company that still has an old fashioned pension, it might be worth it. Um, and so, but it was just constantly learning new people, good issues, um, and a place that, you know, I could network and get to know people and still, you know, I'm out now five years and I, you know, I still talk to probably people from that company all the time and go out with them. I was out with one of them this week. And so when you find a place that fits you culturally, you know, enjoy it and take advantage of it. I've had, you know, th that was for me. There were other people who worked there and I have counseled people to maybe look for different cultures or opportunities because it was clear that there was a disconnect between what they valued or what the culture was like and where they would thrive. And so, you know, I think that's also something very important for people to realize, you know, sometimes it's not about you or the company. It's just not a good fit. And this goes for law firms too. And there is a place and it may take some meandering around where you will be a good fit, but, you know, some, take some risks, build some skills and things so that you can get different opportunities to figure out what are the, your strengths and how do you leverage them? This is interesting because I don't think I've ever talked about office culture before on the podcast, but this is our opportunity now. Can you sort of describe what an office culture is just as a sort of meaning and then as well, how to identify if a culture is right for you or not. Well, you know, and sometimes you don't know what whether one's right for you until unfortunately you're there. And I often tell people, if you're anyone that doesn't work, write down what doesn't work. So you can ask questions the next time when you go on an interview to see if that's a similar culture. Other clients of mine have reached out to people who used to work in the culture to see what it's like because they've had bad experiences in different ones. A lot of it has to do with things such like, what's the autonomy? Uh, you know, how much autonomy do you have? Do you also have support? Are there ways for you to develop? Um, do you feel like you belong and it's an inclusive relationship? Um, Met was a very meritocracy. Uh, it changed to a meritocracy while I was there, which meant we had like forced distributions of curves. You know, you have curves in college. We had curves for our ratings, which impacted you. Wow, opportunities for bonuses and this and and we started out with like twenty on the high, twenty on the low. So you mean there was twenty percent of the people at the low end every year, and some people did not thrive in that type of meritocracy. Some would say it wasn't. You know, maybe you know some people had some questions as to how meritocracy. You know, whether they were looking at the right criteria, whatever. But for some people, that wasn't a good fit. For me. The, what how they were approaching it was a good fit for me. And I liked that it was inclusive. And I liked that um, I had a lot of autonomy when I first got there. And I was given a lot of opportunities to do new different things and hard things and things I hadn't done before. And I had the support of my management and the higher management in doing that. So it's understanding, you know, how much micromanagement, though no one tells you they're a micromanager, but it's trying to ask questions like, you know, how would you describe the culture here? What do you like? What would you change about the culture? So if you're interviewing, you can ask those types of questions and sometimes you'll get answers that will be helpful. What happened to the person in the last position? Why did they leave? You know, so that starts to give you clues. Um, 
if you look at it and it's everyone is a white guy, you know, is this the right place for me? I don't, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe there's more opportunities because, you know, you're exposing new ideas to them. But it's just understanding all of that is part of the culture. Yeah, I've I've came across company culture before. My brother and his business partner had a startup, which I won't get into the weeds of all that, but it would basically describe, uh, allow companies to show the, I guess, the people who were looking to get a position to sort of ask questions to an AI chatbot, get some responses. And one of the big questions that were always asked when they went through sort of the surveys and the tests is what is the company culture? What's the sort of day to day? And I think those are really important things that kind of get swept under the rug when you're thinking about getting positions. Oh, go ahead. If you have something. We spend so much time at work that you want to be a place you feel comfortable at. I mean, if you're, you know, most, there's very few lawyers, there's some lawyers who work part-time stuff, but most lawyers work barely lengthy hours. And so if you're going to be doing that, you want to be in a place you feel like you belong. It's a good fit. Um, that the people you're in the trenches with are people you want to be in the trenches with. I'm not saying homogeneous, but like people who are nice and supportive and interesting. Um, So, you know, it really is critical to understand. And then, you know, there are places that, you know, some people refer to as Midwest nice. I hope no one gets offended by that, which is, you know, people who are nice to your face and then the behind, you know, they're doing other things. New York, they tend to stab you right in the front. You know, it's sort of, you know where you stand. Um, but that type of thing. And so it's important to know. And if it does, if it isn't working, there's no shame, you know, in looking for another alternative. Now, if someone gives you feedback, you may still need to work on certain things, but there's no shame in changing positions. So something you talked about before, in terms of your time at MetLife, you were able to network with a ton of people, meet a ton of people, still talk to those people to the, to this day. Can you talk about how important networking is and how it's been in your career? And I guess as well to tag on to that uh, mentorship as well in your career as well, how integral and important they've been in your career. Other than probably my first law firm job, I don't know if I've had an opportunity that did not come out of networking. So I'm going to, so really there's this saying networking, your network is your net worth. Oh, I and, that. <laughs> and you know, there are studies that show that no matter what industry you're in, so whether you become a lawyer or not, it really is one of the indicators of success. And so, I mean, at, you know, if you're not in law school yet, it, or even when you are in law school, it's just meeting your classmates, keeping in touch. It's very little things, but it's making those connections and making time for people and getting to know them and what they know and what they think and having them know you. And so whether it's being at the office, you know, like when I was at the company and I think some law firms, you know, they have committees and, you know, resource groups you can join. And that's one way of meeting people who are doing different things, you know, having lunch with a colleague rather than eating at your desk. If your company offers you the opportunity to go to events or conferences And sometimes if they don't, paying out of pocket, all these things sort of add to your value because you know more people who can help you if you ever need it. Um, It also exposes you to different thought leaderships and maybe even different cultures. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people who are thinking about changing jobs, I'm like, well, talk to some other people in different firms, different companies, different whatever. So you can get a sense of what other things are possible. 
And so, and that only happens if you have people you can talk to. So something you mentioned as well, just in that shorter sort of short sentence there, is that having a strong network can add value to what you do and add value to the company that you work at, or maybe you work for yourself and uh, in terms of adding value to yourself, adding values to your customers, your consumers, whatever it may be. Can you talk about value and how important that is throughout anyone's career? I mean, when you want, first of all, to feel like a human being meaningful, you want to add value. You want to feel like you're giving something that what you're doing is good, but Beyond that, you you know, to be have a successful career, you want people to, you know, perceive you as having value and adding it. And, you know, when, unfortunately, part of life now and then is there a cut. So you want to make sure you're like the one giving value. It's sort of like, and one way of doing it is when you're networking or going to events and hearing people talk, it allows you to hear about how different companies, different people are addressing problems, issues. And you could bring that thought leadership back to your organization in a way. And also when you have that network, if your organization is facing an issue, and I've done this a lot, I would reach out to people who I knew at different companies and say, how did you guys handle this? What did you do? What do you think about this? Do you know this law firm on the other side? How do I approach it? And so all of a sudden you are valuable because you're not siloed or isolated. You know, you have exposure to things. And then if unfortunately you need to look at some point for a new position, they're there for that too. But again, if they know you add value, because people don't like to recommend people unless they know they can add value. That's absolutely right. Something I've learned through the all 28 episodes, <laughs> how important value is, how important delivering value is in literally anything that you do in your life. Because if you're a valuable person, People will probably like you. I I would assume so. I mean, obviously you have to be a nice person and, and and all that. But I think at the end of the day, if you can provide value to any sort of position that you're doing, even in in the sort of podcast realm, I as you said before, you you think I add value and I appreciate that. Uh, but in in a sense, it, it's important in anyone's life and anyone's career to to be able to go forward and jumpstart their career, the first thing you should do is build up your skills and add some value to yourself. So then employers will look at you and be like, this is the guy we want. And make sure people know what you're doing and how you're adding value. A lot of times some of us are hesitant. And, you know, clearly that was also on my list of issues when I started. Um, but if people don't know what you do and how you do it, then they're not going to take that into account. So it can feel awkward. There are ways to, you know, you can get a brag buddy who will talk about you if you're shy, but you do want to start to get a little bit more comfortable about talking about how you do add value because it is important and you want, and, and you deserve to get the credit if you do it. That's absolutely right. Now let's talk about what you do now. Well, first, you're an expert and consultant at the Bates Group. I have I I I wonder to myself, what exactly does that mean? What do you do there? <laughs> so Bates is an expert and consulting company that when companies are looking for additional sourcing, like people to help them with huge compliance or risk mitigation projects, um, they're hired. They're also hired when you need experts for trial. And so one of you know. I'm one of their experts. Um, I've helped them with some other things, but I'm one of their experts, mostly in the insurance and financial services area. So that if an issue comes up, 
I have, you know, and that it, it's a good fit, I have the opportunity to be considered. Well, I was just interested because I, I, I keep a lot of people, and I'm not singling you out, but a lot of people are consultants and consultants are, is, is a huge industry that I honestly had no idea about. I just learned today because I know a couple of people who work at KPMG and I thought it was all accounting. That's all they did. But they have a whole other side dedicated to consulting. My mind was blown into millions of people. And the consulting side for a lot of these organizations is actually more fruitful and profitable than the accounting <laughs> side. It's it's very different. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that was and and that was sort of the big project part. Like so if they had a compliance or risk mitigation project with a smaller with an organization, someone like me might be brought in to look at it, see if they uh, if they had an issue and they were trying to put policies and procedures in, whether all the fee lab loops were in, whether I thought it was good. So it's that type of thing also that, you know, it's 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 a broader yeah, thing. But, you know, a lot of people do like the consultancy world. So you are the president, CEO and general counsel. And founder. I'm chief so cook and bottle washer, too. <laughs> The whole, the whole thing, the okay. founder, president, CEO, and general counsel at Focus Forward Consulting. So tell us, tell me, what do you do there? How okay. has it been? I love it. Um, so one of the things, the two things happened that precipitated this. 2008 was a bad year for the law. And we, a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot. And even though I was in-house, I had a lot of friends who were at law firms who were adversely impacted by what was going on. And a lot of them were people who were in their law firms did not own their own business. And so before they used to get fed from partners and when there was less work, guess who didn't get fed? And so I wanted to, I started doing some volunteer work with uh, mostly women who were at law firms who were sort of trying to figure out how to develop their own business. And then at the same time at Met, I had climbed the ladder to an extent where I had a team. And one of the things I became known for was my talent development. And like most of my teams, a lot of members of my team went on to have really great careers, either inside or outside the company. And so I was put on all the talent initiatives and I really loved it. I really, that was the part of my job that I loved as a leader and manager was helping people find what they were good at, whether it was there or someplace else and help them paved that path to getting there. So the two things sort of had to do with how do you change your career? So while I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I hit my pension number, I realized that I really had this passion for talent. So I spent like a year or two talking to different people about what that could look like. What type of jobs? Do I go to a law firm and do something? Do I do it? And I eventually decided to form my own company and work with um, individuals, law firms, and companies on sort of talent development issues, including a lot of focus on career and career leadership and business development. And so I've been doing that now for about five years on top of the, the Bates part of my portfolio. It's crazy because I see 2019 and I don't think it's that long ago. And you just said it was five years ago. I'm a little blown away right now. But I just have to say, first of all, I think it was very cool that you had your own team. I want my own team one day because that I just think it's awesome. Even even if it has nothing to do with anything, just to have a team would be. I awesome. I had a great. I have had some great people on my team. I actually just went with one of my teams to 
a lot of them were turning, I hate to say 50. So they rented a place in Lake Cuomo and invited me. So I went there uh, and it was great. And, we, you know, it having a team and, be, you know, first of all, you leave an organization in better shape if you're good at it. Uh, and that's the first thing. But the second thing you're really, um, I think of as a great responsibility to help people find what is right for them. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't, it wasn't always that place. And there's a, I, I just think of it as your responsibility as a leader and a manager to do that. And so, I, and I, I love it. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the part of our responsibility is what I'm most interested in, because I feel like when I'm responsible for more things, I kind of, you know, put it up a couple gears and it sort of motivates me further to be like, all right, like I actually have people that are dependent on me. I got to really work my ass off, make sure I'm doing everything right. But we usually talk about on this podcast, starting a law firm, but today we have a company. So can you talk about the process of starting a company? Because I feel like when I ask these questions, the Pandora's box opens. It's, Not there's a lot to it. You know, <laughs> I, you know, I thought, and I, you know, it's like, I thought I had prepped. Like I said, I was talking to people for a year or two. I thought about what a business plan could look like. I had it sketched out. I had, you know, I was known as a great networker beforehand. I thought I had, you know, connections that would, you know, light my business on fire. <laughs> and, you know, and I had some of that in the beginning. But then as you're doing it, you're like, okay, I need more leads. I need more of this. And so I started to like think about educate myself more than I probably should have before I launched the business. And, you know, I, I'm, I speak frankly about this and, you know, I was doing better than I thought I was going to do, but I also realized that I didn't, there was a ton I didn't know. Like I started going to free things by experts who are, you know, on LinkedIn or webinars that they were running. And so I eventually during, I think it was probably during the pandemic or right before it joined, um, I got a, my own business coach and she was running some masterminds and I joined and it really has changed the trajectory of my business because one, she was very pragmatic and practical as to how to set certain things up and automate them and what you needed to do to increase your funnel and how to be much more strategic and intentional with your business development. Uh, than I was. And I think during my first year with her, I doubled my business. And so, and it, and it was during the pandemic when I, you know, and actually one of the things I learned is you don't you need to say yes to every event. Um, you know, I was actually spending a lot of time on the subway, um, <laughs> you know, going to see people. But so, but there's a lot of, you know, and I continue to learn and make mistakes. You know, and that's the whole thing when you're starting your own business, you're going to think, oh, this is a great idea. Falls flat. Why did it fall flat? Is it that I didn't do something right? Did it not speak to the audience? Did I not give enough time? Or is it just not something that they want? And so it's getting sort of, you know, comfortable with a little bit of failure or not, not being successful on certain things and taking it as a learning opportunity. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, the nice part about it is I, my husband would say, well, you, you're still working pretty hard. 
but it's a different type of work and I have a lot more control over my schedule. So if one day I have two hours and I want to go for a run, I can do that like at 12 o'clock and no one's going to look at me like, where have you been when you come in sweaty into the office? Um, you know, if I, you know, it, there's a, that part of, there's a lot of flexibility, but you're also on, you know, you're feeding yourself. So as we were talking about earlier, you know, if I want this to work, you know, I have to be doing, you know, no one is feeding me work. There's not a steady paycheck. Um, so you, you do want to think about if you are going to launch your own business, you know, a lot of people do podcasts like you are, you know, how you're going to market yourself, how you're going to network, what are your message points, what's your, what's your value statement to get back to what we were talking to earlier. You know, we talked, you know, showing value, but also how do I demonstrate to people who might not know me except from social media, my value so that they want to hire me. Yeah, those are fantastic points, I have to say. They're questions that I ask myself every day, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Still, you know, trials and tribulations of the whole thing. You know, I have my podcast, but... But the beauty is you have, you know, people, I think, and especially I was probably that way too in college. Like, you know, I said, you know, the natural path was I was going to go to law school. You know, I didn't do the accountant thing. So next thing, law school. Um, but so many people change their careers so many times to do different things that we, we get, nothing is final. Nothing is it. And so, and there's always opportunities to do or try something different. Um, I have clients who've gone into PR. I have one in crisis management, one in diversity, one who's uh, done a startup in Paris. So, well, I have traditionally mostly your traditional lawyers, but there are just so many opportunities out there that, you know, if it's not right for you, that's okay. You've learned some stuff that's going to be transferable. What do you do next? Once again, fantastic point. Being able to pivot, being able to take those risks, uh, assess your career, really thinking about, and this is something I've been reading in a book uh, that I recently got, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and he talks about extensively. Uh, and I would have to say, I'm guessing you've probably read that book before. Yes. Because you got the lifestyle down. I have to say, you got the four-hour work week down. But something he talks about is, is being able to reflect and being able to see what's the worst that could possibly happen. How bad could it be? And I think that's such an important point because people feel cornered. People feel, you know, I'm going to be in this career for the rest of my and life. And I've had a lot of people have been fired in this. And it's, guess what? It works out at the end in some way. <laughs> Um, and it's that's also when we were talking earlier about your network. And, you know, that's another place your network can be so valuable. If you're not in the right place for you, they're there to help you explore, like I did, what was going to be next. And actually, my place was the right place for me for like 20 something years. But I wanted something different. You know, some people it's seven months and then they want something different. But, you know, people can help you explore that. You don't have to do it by yourself that's that's it, it's absolutely right and i just want to go back to something you said before which was the ability to say no is so so important and it's something that i've learned throughout my you know through the, through the short journey that i've had here it's been absolutely integral the the ability to say no can you sort of talk more on that 
and describe it more. So many of us just feel like we have to say yes to everything. We're either people pleasers or we're worried what will happen. And, you know, at some point, if you're saying it too much, it may be a problem. But, you know, if you don't say no, what happens is you become overworked, overdone, burnt out. And then the quality of the work that you're giving isn't what people want. And then you're in a worse position than if you had said no in the first place. And so it's also about being able to set boundaries, learning about how to say no in a way that, especially in the workplace, you know, ah, I would love to work with you on that project, but I have five things for five other partners. How do I, you know, you know, what do you think? Like, should I prioritize or can I work on the next deal? You know, so it's trying to say it in a way that's not like, no, I don't want to work, but really explaining why and still being eager and interested um, and it's also important to be able to say no to yourself because sometimes we hold on to work rather, um, rather than give it to somebody else. And so you don't, de- you know, you don't learn to delegate or say, oh, is there a more junior person? And then you're not doing the work that's going to help you grow and have do strategies. You're, and then you're stuck and you feel miserable because you're bored because you're doing the same thing. But one, you feel no one can do it as well as you. There are also some managers who believe if they delegate certain things, what would happen to them? Do they look like they could be redundant and be thrown, you know, like out? Um, But to me, it's being able to say no to everybody, including yourself, because now and then we're our own worst enemy in terms of not setting appropriate boundaries. I certainly know that very well. I've been on Instagram before, those reels that get after me, they certainly do. And it's and I always talk about they are built to make you keep swiping. And there's so many times where I'll just be doing it and I literally have to tell myself in my head, like, hey Nate, take your phone take your hand off the phone, stop scrolling. So it's just something like that. And and I just had to, you know. I, I, this is to- a little bit off kilter, but I was just listening to um, Killian Murphy, who's in, uh, in Oppenheimer. And I guess Chris Nolan does not allow phones on the set because he wants everyone focused. He doesn't have and, a phone either. Yeah. And, and Killian is the same way. Like he has a rotary phone at home, you know, like. He, <laughs> so he was like the only one who fit into this mode, like. Robert Downey Jr. was evidently losing his mind because he didn't get on his phone or hiding it or throwing it if anyone came by. So, but there is something to be said is like, I actually think in some ways it's good for a little distraction, clear my head. I can come back fresh and do something, but you have to, again, set those internal boundaries. So speaking of the four hour work week, as, as it's one, it's becoming one of my favorite books I've ever read, but this is, I guess, a new segment that I'm putting on. I'm testing it out here. This is the first episode. I have, I have asked, I have asked people for their book recommendations, but oh. I want to establish it now that this is going to be a question for every single episode going forward. Okay, I can. Get, the Edge by Allison Levine is one of my favorite books. It's, um, she was part of the first U.S. American women team to try to climb Mount Everest. And it's a book about leadership through the lessons that she learned. So it's one of my favorites. Um, I also like Habits, I think by Adam Grant. It tells you how to create good habits and not. Um, Mindset, The Psychology of Success is another fabulous book. And if your, your audience is probably too young, to hopefully to have children, but if you do, it's really good. I think in parenting skills, um, what other books do I like? 
Um, How to Build Your Dream Network by my friend Kelly Huey is a good book. I'm sure I will think I have a whole list at some place that I always recommend to people. Oh, if you were going to become a manager. So this is a little bit down the road. It's called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Radical Candor, how to be a kick-ass manager without losing your humanity, which is a great title. It is a good title. I like that one. Oh, my and goodness. It's, yeah, and it's all about, you know, being honest with people when you're managing them, whether about strengths, fit, whatever, so that they can make those that. And that sort of was my philosophy as a manager. I'm not going to make decisions for you, but I'm going to make sure you have the information, all the information that I can give you so you can make informed decisions about how you want to handle your career. You may not always like what I have to say, but I'm going to tell you, you know, what's working, what's not. And then you can either decide we're going to, you'd like to fix it and we can work together and collaborate or not, but giving people the information so that they can, you know, figure out what they should be doing. I, ju I just wanted to establish that this is becoming a new segment, an established segment, because first, I think book recommendations are really good. I love reading books, so I always I always write them down. I always keep them. But to give a little sneak peek, I've been working on something in the background a little bit. I've been I've been, you know, seeing seeing what Substack has to offer. So I might be start releasing some articles with all the book recommendations that have ever been said on the Lawyers in the Making podcast. Oh, another great one is by my friend, three other women and my friend Rhonda McLean, uh, McLean uh, and it's called, I'm gonna, I don't know the full title and she would tell me, The Little Black Book of Success. And it's for, um, it's, for, you know, this, a guide for black women. And that's the part I'm missing. But it is, to, in my mind, one of the best books for someone starting out, whether you're a woman or man, what no matter what race, th there are so many gems of wisdom in that book about how to think about your career and move forward. That I, it, it, It's a fabulous book, especially, you know, either as a graduating college or thinking about embarking on a law school career. Well, I always love the recommendations, but we're down to our last three questions. The first question is, what are the sorts of things that you consume, not food, consume on a daily basis, either that be through social media, so you know, Instagram, the X platform, Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, uh, any favorite people that you like to read on a daily basis? What is crossing the transom of Sheila's mind on a daily basis? Okay, this this is sort of like when I... So tell every, be very transparent. I, um, I don't know, you know, I know you did some, looked at some of my stuff on LinkedIn, but I'm, I'm, I'm a big pop culture person. Okay. So I watch a lot of TV, a lot of movies, whether it was from 1920 through the present. And, you know, I read a ton of, like I said, I can read some highfalutin books, but I also read a lot of junk. Um, but I am a reality TV maven. Like oh, I watch a lot of reality TV and, um, it's sort of my escape. And I do on X follow that a lot. I, I rarely comment on it, but I love following the strength. <laughs> and um, I follow a lot of people on LinkedIn, just who are thought leaders like Adam Grant, I think I mentioned, uh, Brene Brown, um, some other people, uh, just to see how they're approaching management and other things. Um, so there is that high part. And then I try to read a good mix of like we were talking about the nonfiction and I read a lot of fiction, whether it's and it, my probably one of my favorite genres is Scandinavian 
um, murder mysteries, uh, <laughs> which I, you know, I started reading them. I liked them. And then the New York times came up with like a 30, 300 novels. And so I worked my way through it and now there's sequels to most. So I'm still going. Um, but yeah, so I, I like to consume, I like getting a lot of information from a lot of different sources, like some that I agree with, some that I don't agree with, so that I am not siloed in my thinking. Yeah, I think- I try not to be, I try not to be siloed. In my no, I think, I, I think that's an excellent point, not being so siloed in your thinking. Be, having an open mind, being able to see all the different viewpoints that are possible, and then boiling it down, seeing how practical it can be in your life. But I have to ask- you love reality TV. Are you a fan of The Real Housewives? <laughs> I've watched every episode since they've come on in every franchise. How's that? No, that, that's excellent. My mother I have yet. <laughs> my mother is a very big fan. Uh, I'd have to say my favorite is New Jersey. How could it not be? I think they're the most iconic. Do you think I like New York better. Miami's good. Salt Lake City right now. Uh, I've actually gone to watch What Happens Live once. My daughter is in media, so she's met some of the people. Um, Mostly the Vanderpump Rules people. Oh, okay, okay. But yes, yeah, yeah. I am a like from day one. Like when I and it was funny again. The New York Times had an article on the Orange County Housewives. I said, "Oh, this looks interesting," because that was the first one. And I said, "Oh, let me watch this." Started with them, and then everyone that's come on since I have watched. I've I've seen Orange County. I like Atlanta. I, I, I actually went to a New York event. <laughs> I, I was actually at with um and well I won't say this on public. Like we can talk about it all of a sudden. But anyway, so I went to one of the charity events that the one of the New York Housewives was running, wow. and so that was sort of interesting. Oh, that's crazy! So like a second, like a millisecond, I'm in the background of one of the shots. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just had to ask because you talk about reality TV. I've been watching that since I was like five years old. Because my mom, you know, she put it on. She'd be watching on the couch. I'd just be sitting there watching with her. So I've, I've been through a lot of the seasons. I know a lot have of Have you the... watched Traders on Peacock? I have not. I would. It's got a lot of the housewives on it. The old... <laughs> Very good. Tra... Season two is much better than season one. I'll leave it at that. An- another reality TV show that I, I don't know if you like it or not, but one of my favorites, I love the Jersey Shore. Do you love the Jersey Shore? I used to watch it. I know that I haven't watched it since they're sort of like grown up and back, but I, I don't watch, watch any of that. I watched it when they were younger. One of my favorite shows. It was literally a family event for us. We'd watch like the new one. So <laughs> Are you from Jersey? No, I'm from, from I'm, I'm from New York, but I'm from Long Island, Suffolk County. Okay. So, okay, I, we have a place in Fire Island, so I spend uh, I split my time between the city and Fire Island. That that is a wonderful thing. I love Fire Island. That's one of my favorite places. I'm usually out there every summer with my friends, doing you know whatever the hell we're doing. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, nothing we need to go on. To <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. I, I don't, I don't need to be detained live on the lawyers and making no. podcasts. <laughs> but my second to last question here. You're always you're always working. You got your consulting company. You're doing stuff for women, the Bates Group. But what does an ideal Friday night and Sunday morning look for Sheila? Oh, Friday night, drinks and dinner probably. You know, and that's Friday night and Sunday morning. I probably okay if it's during the summer. I run on. You know, I get up. I run, and then I come back, and then I walk to the beach. Go to my own little corner at the beach. <laughs> and fire island with my book and that's a very happy day with maybe the carcer puzzle but you know um i am like i do a lot of networking and going out you know for my 
work. So a lot of times when it's on my off time, I like to make it smaller, either people who I'm very close to or family and stuff. So it's sort of that regroup. While I have become less of an ostrich, you know, <laughs> it's still probably a little bit of my tendency to have some of that time to refuel. Absolutely. I mean, and usually, you know, a glass of wine or two, you know. Uh, listen, absolutely. Wine down. It's how it's it's how it's supposed to be in the off time. Now, the last question here, Sheila, I do this at the end of every episode. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring law students, the current law students, and the current legal professionals out there in the world? It's a long career. You're not wed to anything. There are a lot of options. Be open to them. Learn what you can and take advantage of it. I think too many times lawyers get wed to a path that they think is the right path. And it may not be right for them. And so think about what's right for you and make your decisions from there. Beautifully poetic, Sheila. But that's the podcast, Sheila. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing these experiences, sharing this wisdom. And for every, everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.